Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for listening once again. In this week's discussion, we're going to take a bit of a shift. Unlike the last couple of weeks where we took Rav Hirsch's approach to the symbolic calling of the Bible, and we showed how that orientates us, how that gives us a very broad message, what we're going to do in this week's discussion is pivot. We're going to change our perspective. We're going to look at something more specific, but no less relevant. The shift we are going to take is towards the direction of the oral law, the Talmud, the oral teachings of the Jewish people. Now, these are no less relevant than the Bible from an orthodox perspective. It's not like you can have one and lose the other. But there is a certain, I don't call it a danger necessarily, but there is a certain tendency to look at the Bible as being very grounded. Its messages are clear. It gives stories, and those stories are clear, and those stories give over messages. When the Bible gives over a sign or a symbol, be it the rainbow, be it brismila, we derive meaning from that, and that meaning colors our lives. But the Talmud is a book of law, and those laws are a bit arbitrary, they're a bit irrelevant. I mean, of course, they're important, people will say, but they have no relevance to the questions of meaning, the questions of orientation. They're laws, and of course, laws are important, but when we want to have a discussion of symbolism and meaning, we'll stick to the Bible, because that's where it really lies. This approach, which is often come across, and even if people don't articulate it, they generally speaking approach it like this. But what I want to do in this week's discussion is show how Rav Hirsch not only shows the marriage, not only shows the deep connection between the oral and the written law, he shows how that connection is essential. Not only essential from the point of view of it might actually represent a truth, but also essential to appreciate the actual symbolic meaning of a biblical sign, to actually make it work, to make it make sense, Because without the added component of the oral tradition, you end up with a dry, shallow, flat approach to what the Torah is trying to teach us. So the way we're going to play this out is I'm going to give the biblical perspective and I'm going to do a good job of it. But then afterwards I'm going to show how once we add in or we slot in the oral tradition, it not only brings it to life, it also pushes away... um, contradictory notions that would be there if we didn't have this perspective. So let us begin. The Jewish people are being created as a people. And the first law the Jewish people get, the first law of the Torah to the Jewish people as a nation, at their very inception, is what's known as Kiddush HaChodesh. Without going into exactly the Sukim that describe this idea and how there's a sort of a repetition, but Rav Hirsch's draws out that God points to the moon, figuratively, and says this should be a renewal to you. What you see happening in the sky should bring about that renewal in yourselves. It should be a renewal to you as a people. This waxing and waning that you see in the sky, from a slither of silver to this bright orb and back to darkness, and then it repeats. Each month you get that renewal. The message being to Moshe is that unlike what happened to Paroi, unlike what happened to the Egyptian people, how they got stuck in this um, hardening of their hearts, stuck in this road to evil, and no matter what happened to them, they weren't able to draw themselves out. You, as a people of God, will look up to the sky and will see the renewal of that crescent in the sky, the reflection of the sun's light every single month, that periodical renewal in the sky, and it will bring to light the renewal that you have to make in your heart, the renewal that you have to make in your moral life. 
Just like the sky makes a renewal, you too can make a renewal. That creation from nothing, that yesh mi'ayin, that the pagan world of Egypt denied, ability to change your life, to look at the past and say it won't dictate my future, you point to the sky and that will remind you periodically, every month, by way of an immunization to the, the corruption or the, the toxic approach to life that the Egyptian world gave over, the moon will call to you and say, no, no, no. Every month I have the opportunity to return to the Almighty. Every single month I have the opportunity to return to the moral life. I have the ability to uproot myself from the darkness and renew that light in my own life. The Torah itself refers to Rosh Chodesh as a Moed. Moed coming from the root a meeting. We come and meet God once again. We come from wherever we may have been before and we meet that expectation of ourselves. We meet that calling on us as individuals. Hence, other festivals are called a moed as well, a meeting point between us and God, be it to recount a historical event when it comes to the other festivals or this periodical meeting that we have every month with Rosh Chodesh. So that's the message of the moon. The first message, the first pivotal point where the Jewish people are becoming a nation, that foundation is put into concrete symbolic expression, the moon, something that no matter where you are in life, both from a point of view of location, you see the moon. And no matter where you are from the point of view of your moral standing, however low you may be, God is calling out to us and saying, you can change. That change can happen. So that's beautiful. That's our first idea. That's the moon. That's the, the moon, that message the moon is giving over to us. Okay, but there are some questions that come into play here. Almost in contrast to our actual message of freedom and moral renewal, if you took a step back and looked at what the Jewish people are doing, they're standing there and they're taking note of the movement of the heavenly bodies. There's a certain determinism there. I mean, nature is as forced as it can possibly be, and you're running your life in sync with nature. But wait a minute, isn't this something you were stepping away from? Wasn't this something that a pagan nature worship cult is a approach to the world that we are just part of nature and we move in sync with nature? Isn't the message of the Bible, the message of the Jewish people is that no, you can transcend and the moon was supposed to remind of this, of this ability to transcend, but the moon itself is forcing you, is it not? Isn't there a certain contradiction there to both what you're trying to express through the symbolism and the symbol itself? So there's a certain irony here. The very thing that is calling upon you to make a creation within yourself is the very thing that is the most forced, the most cyclical, the most hearkening back to ancient pagan times that you're reliving in your life. So I hope I've done justice to that first question. But the next question is, Simi, you called it a meeting. A meeting? Well, a meeting, that sounds beautiful, of course, a mud. We meet God, but wait a minute. If I'm being forced to go to this meeting by this periodical celestial sphere, how in the world is that a meeting? That's God demanding my presence. It's like a, a, a master demanding the servant arrive. How is that a meeting? A meeting implies by mutual consent. If you're invited to a meeting, you go to a meeting. If you're called to come to your boss's office, that's not exactly called a meeting. So our two problems. First of all, the actual symbol itself doesn't really cry out free will. And non-determinism, 
it calls out quite the opposite, the symbol itself. And second of all, the very nature of Rosh Chodesh being called a meeting, a moed between us and God. Wait a minute. If the moed, the meeting, as well as all the other moedim are called a meeting because we come and meet God, that is not what gives rise when you think about the moon. The nature of the moon is to come periodically, necessarily. That gives rise to a demanding of your presence, not so much a meeting point. This is when Rav Hirsch draws out from the Talmud. This is when Rav Hirsch draws out how the laws that are associated, the laws that are manifest when it comes to the Kiddush HaChodesh, when it comes to the laws of sanctifying the new moon, how these laws come together to lay waste to these criticisms. When these ideas are brought into mind as well, a completely new perspective arises. And I'm only going to be able to touch on a few of them, but there are many. The first and most fundamental point is that the way the Jewish people decided it was going to be the beginning of the month, which is how the Jewish people approached their calendar, the new moon not only was a symbol of renewal, it is also, as the Apostle continues, a symbol of the beginning of the month. How the Jewish people decided it was going to be the beginning of the month wasn't by the moon. Yes, the moon was correlated, but it wasn't what made it happen. It was known by the language of the Talmud, Al-Pi-Ri'ir from the point of view of the viewer, from the subjective first-person perspective of the individual. What do I mean? When we saw that renewal of the moon in the sky, it didn't make it the next month. It didn't call to us the next month. It didn't call to us the beginning of the next month. No. Two individuals would have to go to Besdin, would have to go to the courts and testify to have seen the moon. But wait a minute, everybody's seen the moon doesn't matter. They had to testify to it. They had to testify that they had experienced the moon, and they were taken to court, and they were interrogated. They were cross-examined. And once it had been decided that these people are considered worthy witnesses to have experienced the moon, it would be considered the next month. It has been sanctified. The moon has made us be able to go forward with the next month. Now, let me express the importance or the novelty of this. Even when the Bezdin made a mistake and said it's the next month, but they had made a mistake, it didn't matter. It was still the next month. If they had made a mistake in which witnesses they accepted and they realized that it hadn't been the new month, it was accepted. The subjective input on the individual, that was the calling cry to whether it was the next month or not. Not the moon itself. Yes, at a certain point it would become the next month on the 31st day. But whether the people had decided it was, was whether it became it or it didn't. So let's recap this first idea. The idea that it is not the periodical movement of the celestial spheres that forces us to come to God. No, it is the individuals, it is the people on the ground who made it happen by their subjective experience of it. There is nothing that calls more to man's experience in the world than the moral life. That is where the moral life takes place, with individuals, with individuals who have a first-person perspective. We don't look at the animal world and call it a moral life in the same way. We have the ability to look at ourselves. We have the ability to contemplate ourselves and reflect on how we act. And that idea is being articulated with the notion of al a law that is almost taken for granted by people who learn the Talmud, and people who don't learn the Talmud, they don't really know about it. But the idea that the Jewish people's month wasn't forced on them by the moon, they decided when it was the new month. 
Yes, it was determined by when someone had experienced the moon, but the subjective human experience was key. So this really does answer both our problems. Yes, it's a meeting. A meeting because we are the ones who decide when it is the new moon. Yes, God does his part. The moon does appear. But whether it has been accepted by us is down to the Besdin and the witnesses who come to Besdin to testify they experienced it so. And the first question, the very symbol is so periodic? Yes, but not how it's treated in law. Yes, the periodical nature of the moon is forced. It comes. But whether we accepted it or whether we giving it the stamp of the individual autonomy, the stamp of the individual will, is given to us by Chazal, is given to us by the sages' understanding of what this law is, of what's known as Al-Piru'iyah, from the point of view of the viewer, where we realize that it's not the symbol itself, it is the association with the individual perspective, it is the association with the autonomy of the individual that makes it the sign of Rosh Chodesh. And that is a true meeting. We approach God, and he approaches us. Thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful Shabbos.